But like I was literally the guy they would bring out, like I'd throw my bullpen, I would catch like 20, 30 bullpens in a row. I'd throw my bullpen and then they'd have me come out and they'd do the dirt ball reads off of me. Welcome back to Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I am your host, Kyle Banduho. We've reached episode 10 of this interview series, and I want to thank everyone who has tuned in so far to listen to these players' stories and career experiences. It's been a blast for me to put them out and talk to these guys and, and hear what they went through grinding up through the minor leagues, and I'm glad everyone else has come to check those out. Also, a big thanks to everyone who's left a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and everyone who's subscribed wherever they get their podcast episodes of From Phenom to the Farm do come at you every other Tuesday. So if you enjoyed this episode and you're not subscribed yet, make sure to subscribe. Stay tuned for the next one. On today's episode, I am talking to Carter Caps, who went from a Division II walk-on slap-hitting catcher to pitching in the big leagues in a three-year span. Carter talked about his conversion to pitching, flying up the ladder, and playing with each row. He also talks about the unique delivery he developed while playing with the Marlins, which for me personally is probably a top five all-time reliever delivery. So I was really happy that Carter took the time to come on the podcast, explain kind of how he grew into that delivery, and then how he had to adjust living without it. As always, it is a great time to be subscribed to BaseballAmerica.com because real life MLB baseball is actually back, along with those satellite summer camp games, and BA has you covered with summer camp prospect roundups, insights on prospects getting big league time, as well as plenty of coverage on college baseball and the upcoming draft class of 2021. You can get that on the regular Baseball America podcast feed as well, also available wherever you get your podcasts. For more updates on future episodes of this series, you can follow my personal Twitter handle at Kyle Banduho. That's B-A-N-D-U-J-O. And with that, let's talk to Carter Caps. All right, joining me today on today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was a third-round pick of the Mariners in 2011, former big league pitcher Carter Caps. Carter, thanks so much for taking the time to join from Phenom to the Farm. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, hopefully I can uh, shed some light on uh, my journey a little bit. Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. You've got a you've you've got a pretty unique background compared to a lot of the guys we've talked to. Um, yeah, just kind of starting off with that, you debuted in the big leagues as a pitcher at age 21, which is definitely a, a qualifier for saying that someone was a phenom. But if you would have told your high school self that, like a 16, 17 year old Carter Caps, that you were going to be in the big leagues four years later, how would that have gone over with that guy? Uh, that guy, as well as the rest of the team and the coaching staff probably would have laughed my face off. Uh, yeah, there was, it was, uh, definitely not, uh, a linear path. I'll say it was definitely like one of those like parabolas. It was ups and downs. It was a lot of bouncings around, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a blast and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So let's, let's go into that high school guy. What kind of, what kind of player were you? in high school what kind of recruit for you you ended up going to mount olive which if you're familiar with division two baseball is a powerhouse but if you're not too familiar with division two baseball you might not have ever heard of it how did you wind up at mount olive yeah so uh like a little bit about mount olive it's a town of like four thousand people and that's when the school is in session when the school's out of session it's like two thousand maybe so it's there's nobody there uh, I think two or three stoplights, but yeah, no. So uh, for me, it was uh, I was a backup catcher uh, for most of my career. To be honest, uh, I really got a chance to play uh, varsity in my sophomore year. Uh, sophomore year, I was playing like starter catcher for JV, and then senior year, I was starting catcher for varsity. I had a really good uh, catcher that was before me. 
Uh, and so I was trying to just, just rode his coattails and uh, just did whatever was asked of me. And uh, that was kind of my high school journey. I pitched a little bit uh, after I went to a perfect game showcase and like popped like 89 or 90 uh, because I was literally the last guy on the field. And they're like, does anybody else want to throw? And I was like, sure. Yeah. Nobody else was raising their hands. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll try throwing off the mound. And uh, so threw a little bit. And then I uh, actually came back uh, and told my coach that like I threw a pitch and I thought I could help the team out. Like I, I stayed after practice. I like had a one-on-one with the coach. Like I thought I was going to like drop this huge bomb on him. And he kind of like laughed in my face a little bit, actually. He's like, no, you're a catcher. Like uh, if we have some innings, yeah, maybe we'll throw you out there. But it wasn't like, yeah, you're the guy or anything. So, yeah. So what was before you got to Mount Olive? What was, did you throw any innings at all in high school? Yeah, so I'd say I probably threw around seven innings, all in relief, uh, just as needed. Mostly, like, whenever, I, I threw in, like, one playoff game, and it was like, we had already lost, and I was like, the guy was kind of getting shelled a little bit, and I was like, throw me out there, like, if I get hit around, I don't care. And uh, that was pretty much it. Uh, I think, I, like I said, seven innings, like, pretty good numbers, but it was like seven innings in rural North Carolina. It wasn't, like... 4A Texas or anything. So what was your recruitment like? Were you, were there any, a lot of schools talking to you or, you know, how did you wind up at Mount Olive as a catcher? Yeah. So uh, for me, it was a uh, pretty, pretty uh, cut and dry. Uh, there was exactly one school that recruited me and it was Mount Olive. Uh, Coach Lancaster, who's actually retired now. Uh, I think he's like one of the most winningest coaches in D2 or something crazy. Uh, but yeah, he, Came down, uh, saw my arm. Uh, I think he probably saw me just taking in and out, to be honest, uh, just throwing around to bags uh, before the game. Uh, but yeah, he came out and said, hey, we'd, uh, we'd really like to have you out. I'd like to see you a little bit more. Uh, maybe think about have you as a two-way guy to Mount Olive. And I think that was like his selling point was he was going to bring me in as a two-way guy and immediately transfer me to a just pitcher only, but just didn't tell me that. But uh, yeah, so that was, I literally, if I wanted to play college baseball, I was going to go play at Mount Olive or going to not play. So what do you think your ceiling was as a catcher? After experiencing college, did you think, do you think you could have made it as a, as a good D2 catcher? Uh, well, as a career 500 major league hitter, uh, I'd like to say yes, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, uh, definitely not. I, like, I'd run into one every now and then and it'd be impressive, but honestly, I, I was kind of like a slap hitting catcher that was really good defensively. Like, I, you see my 6'5 like, frame, it's like, oh, wow, this guy's probably got some pop. And uh, at the time, I really didn't. I've taken BP since, and my pops got a little bit better. But yeah, it's, like I wasn't, I wasn't gonna wow you with the bat by any means. Well, you get to Mount Olive as, in your mind, a catcher. But you redshirt your freshman year. When do you first get on the bump? Did he basically have you turn in your gear the second you got to campus, or did he let you play fall ball? Oh no, no, he was uh, he was probably like a sadist. He was uh, pretty mean about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yo, so uh, my when I was my first year, uh, it was pretty evident early on that I was going to redshirt. Like he he made it pretty well known. But like I was literally the guy they would bring out. Like I'd throw my bullpen, I would catch like 20, 30 bullpens in a row. I'd throw my bullpen, and then they'd have me come out and they'd do the dirt ball reads off of me. So like they literally would set up a pitching machine, and it's just throwing like 
you know, 80 mile an hour bangers in the dirt and the guys are getting their reeds and their secondaries and it's my job to sit there and just wear them back behind the dish and uh, like get up and like try and block and recover basically. But uh, yeah, so that was like... So his strategy was make you hate catching enough to, to put your heart into pitching? Yeah, like when you put it that way, it was probably a really smart, smart transition. But yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty brutal for a while. So when did you fully transition into pitching? When did you get serious about it? Yeah, so my second year, I was full-time pitching. But towards the end of my red shirt year, uh, I, I would basically, we, we played Saturday, Sunday. So we played a doubleheader Saturday and a game Sunday, I think is what it was. Um, so basically, I would, at the inner squad, I would pitch Fridays, like just inner squad games, like to the guys to get them like live ABs. So inner like, squad games is a red shirt or the best thing ever. Yeah. So like that was my like that was my Friday night. And like like so I'm like listening to like pump up music. Like I like don't talk to me on Friday. And it's for like practice. Like it's just, like it has no bearing on anything. And I'm just like I'm taking it dead serious. And uh so I just started seeing some success there. And actually towards the end, uh, because we think we made we might have made regionals that year. Um they had contemplated like just cashing in my red shirt and uh just let me pitch in regionals because i had been doing like that well in the inner squads and uh they eventually didn't uh and i in retrospect they probably should have because you were gone (laughs) two years later anyways yeah but like honestly they they did right by me in that aspect for sure they definitely uh realized i would have more value like just saving me. Uh, so yeah, I know I appreciate that from them, but, uh, yeah, pretty crazy. So the next year you're, you're lights out. You're one of the best division two pitchers in the country. What, how did that transition come about? When did you, was it the fall that you started to realize, Hey, I'm going to be a dude or was it not until you started facing other teams in the spring where you're like, Hey, this pitching thing is actually going pretty well. Yeah. So like I came in like, probably like six two, like 185 pounds soaking wet like I was like pretty pretty thin guy and we had a very like regimented workout program and it was just like it, it was tough I mean it was like like we were expected guys to kind of throw up every like weightlifting session kind of thing uh so we had that and like I just kind of carried that mentality like so I, I didn't travel at all obviously my retreat year so like the town go the team would go out of town and I would like just live in the gym and then that summer, uh, same thing. Like I took like weightlifting very seriously. Like I saw like as I was adding weight, like good weight, lean weight, like my velocity was creeping up. Like I could control this like now like six three six four frame. Like I was starting to be able to control my body a little bit better and not look like a giraffe out there. Like it was like starting to click a little bit. And I think that's really was the turning point. And then like the competitiveness was always there because like. Like I said, I had that like chip on my shoulder from being like a backup catcher and just the dirt ball read L screen guy, basically. Uh, so yeah, you have a lights out year, but then you go to the Coastal Plains League in, in the summer between your redshirt freshman year and your redshirt sophomore year. And Baseball America has you as the top prospect in the Coastal Plains League. You're ahead of. You know, Buck Farmer from Georgia Tech, who ended up pitching in the big leagues. Will Lamb from Clemson, big name, you know, big name schools. Did, did Was it at that point that you realized that you might have a future after college in, in pro ball? Well, so actually I went 
to Cape Cod League the second year after the second year after I actually got drafted. The, oh, the, no, the, the well, the the summer before though, in between was Coastal Plains, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. Sorry, yeah. So I went to the Coastal Plain League and uh, I just like did really well there. Lights out, uh, and I actually uh, Team USA came into town, and I, I saw them on the schedule like weeks before, and I, I was begging uh, the owner at the time, uh, Daryl Handelsman. I was like. Daryl, like, I want that game. Like, I, I like it, and I, it didn't even click to me at the time that there would be scouts and stuff there because, like, we were playing them right around draft time. So these are all like big name guys that are going to get drafted. Like, it literally didn't click to me at all. I just had this like huge chip on my shoulder that I was this D two guy, and like all these D one guys were going to come in from Team USA and try to just stomp us. And I was like, I, like, I want to be on the mound. Like, and I was just begging him, begging him, begging him, and he finally, like, gave me the ball, and that's when I, like, really got noticed, because uh, I wasn't even draft eligible then yet, uh, but I just, I went out, and I pitched really well, and I faced, like, big-name guys, like Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, Rendon, I faced uh, some of those guys, and it was just, I, I felt like, wow, I can compete with these guys, and then I think that's when it kind of clicked for me, that, hey, maybe, maybe I do have a chance professionally to play. Was there any thought in your mind to maybe transferring or trying to trying to play your way up into Division One or maybe going to junior college and then making a move, or were you one hundred percent dead set on going back to Mount Olive? Because after you know, after you get Jackie Bradley Jr. out, you're not facing those kind of guys at Mount Olive. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so in the Coastal Plain League, we would have like D, some D one guys, uh, usually smaller D ones or mid majors. But yeah, so like they would say, hey, like my coach really wants to talk to you about coming there. And I was like, well, A, I'd have to sit out a year to go from D2 to D1. And B, like, Mount Olive was the only only one that called me. Like, you guys had a chance to call me and didn't. Like, they were the only ones that took a shot on me. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm going back there unless, like, something radical changes. Like, like they gave me a shot, and I'm going to honor that. Well, it's something about Mount Olive is you're you've got a shot to play for the D two College World Series every year. Kind of like you know I said earlier, if you if you're familiar with small school baseball, uh, Mount Olive's powerhouse. You know it's it's not your typical D two program, but it's a D two program nonetheless. I I've got a very soft spot in my heart for small school baseball. As another small school baseball guy, our our careers were a little different. Uh, obviously, um, I'm on I'm on one end of the microphone, but. Uh, <laughs> I think it can be a great opportunity for high school or junior college guys to, you know, to, to have success. But is there anything specifically about the school or the, the D2 level that you think helped you flourish? What, what about that kind of kind of made you the pitcher you were? Yeah. So like I said, the weightlifting, like they had this really nice gym for a D2. Like it's, it's nicer than anything you're picturing. It was very like great. They did a great job on it, but like we just hammered our, weight room sessions like they were just as important as the like the on-field stuff like they expected you to make gains in the weight room just like they expect you to make gains on the field as a player and I think that was like a, a huge like just light bulb moment for me it just made a lot of sense like wow like there is a correlation here uh and I that's something I can if I can do an extra set of squats and I'm going to get like, if I do an extra set of squats every day and I'm going to get a mile per hour at the end of the year, like you're crazy. If you think I'm not going to go in there and do it every day. So yeah, that was really cool. And then, so the thing about Mount Olive is really small school, but we still have a lot of athletics. So I think 
it was something like 65%, 75% of the like kids on campus were athletes. So it was like, it was just all athletes. Like if you didn't play a sport and you were in one of my classes, it was like, oh, wow. Like, oh, that's cool. What do you, so what is your like plan? Like, what, why are you here? I guess. Uh, I mean, they had great school and everything too, but it was like everybody that who was on campus was pretty much an athlete. It, a it, bunch it, of like commuter students and stuff for the non-athletes. It was like yeah. adult students and commuter students. It, exactly. Yeah. It was commuter students like that were from the area or uh, these adult students who were like coming in, you know, trying to do night classes or whatever. Uh, and it was like, so everybody there played a sport. So it was like, oh, that, that's the best basketball guy. And like, you see him in the weight room and then you see him doing box jumps. Like, wow, he's getting up there. Like, okay, well, I'm going to go grab a box. I'm going to see if I can out jump him, you know? By the time you get to your redshirt sophomore year where you've been a, you've been a top prospect in the Coastal Plains League, you've had, you've already had a stellar, you know, first season playing for Mount Olive. What kind of, what kind of pitcher are you? Like how much of a grasp did you have on that, the actual craft of pitching? You'd only really been doing it for, you know, a year and a half or so. Yeah. So I had exactly one pitch at the time. Uh, it was a fastball. Uh, I threw it in and out and, uh, and I, I, I tried to learn a off-speed breaking ball for so long, and it just nothing ever clicked. I tried curveball sliders, change-up splitties, nothing clicked until really I got it even into pro ball. Uh, I ended up settling on this like little like slider uh, slider curve combo uh, that I used in college and carried that into like the draft in Cape Cod. But yeah, it was I, I just could never find like a pitch that I felt like I could leverage the seam and really like impart the spin I wanted. And that was until I went to this basically slurve grip um, that uh, I threw like in the big leagues. So basically I was learning how to pitch in the big leagues of secondary, which is never ideal. But uh, yeah, it was, it was always a struggle for me because I I had just thrown so many four seamers uh, catching that I I wanted the ball to be straight. Like I wanted, like I wanted my second baseman to put a good tag on the guy. Like I didn't want like arm side run. I didn't want like lift or, or, or drop. Like I didn't want cut. I wanted a straight, straight four saver. And that's what I threw. So, well, your fastball was enough. Your fastball, your frame, your potential was enough to be on the radar of scouts. What was in, in that redshirt sophomore year? What was pre-draft like for you? How much pre pre-draft negotiation did you go through? Did you have, you know, an idea of where you were going to go? Uh, yeah, so I, me and my agent had talked, and like we knew I was going to get drafted. Uh, we were hoping, you know, top three, four rounds, uh, but we didn't have any like pre-draft negotiations. Like a lot of teams were interested, but like you said, like I just had a lot of potential. It wasn't like I had really pitched a bunch of good guys yet. Uh, so it was kind of. I, I think there was a lot of question marks as far as uh, how the stuff would play, and the bit probably probably the ability to learn a secondary pitch. To be honest. So what was draft day like then? What, what was your draft experience? Yeah, so my draft experience was like I come from like a blue collar uh, home. So both my parents were at work and I was just like the, didn't have the channel or whatever at the time that they uh, broadcast the, the later picks on. So I was literally just like kind of in front of the computer and knew I was going to get picked up at some point. And then my agent called and said, hey, uh, you're going to get taken in the third round by the Mariners. Like just got off the phone. Uh, I was like, great. So then, uh, third round comes around and the Mariners don't pick me. Uh, I think they picked John Hicks, a catcher. 
Uh, but what had happened was they had a supplemental pick uh, for the third round. So they had an extra pick. Uh, and then they took me in that. So I kind of uh, was the only, I had my own round almost. I was literally the only person with a third supplemental pick. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of, once again, I think probably foreboding that I was going to have an interesting career, I imagine. But you didn't sign right away. What's the, what's the negotiation process for that? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure like most people, uh, like they're kind of shocked and everything at first. Uh, so eventually, uh, two representatives from the Seattle Mariners came to my house and like sat down on our couch, like talked to me and my parents and said, oh yeah, we just love you. Have you blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, great. And, uh, they said, yeah, we had a few question marks as far as, uh, like guy, like talent of guys you had pitched against. So it kind of sent up a red flag and kind of like pissed me off a little bit right at the gate. Uh, and then it just like, kind of like slowly they were kind of like, I guess building up to lowballing me a little bit. Uh, so then they came in with an offer and they were like, yeah, we're really like, we're ready to start your professional career, whatever. And, uh, here's our offer. And I was like, wow, that's really, really not what I was expecting. It's kind of on the lower side. And like, yeah, well, I mean, it's a good chance to get into professional baseball. And like, we're like, we're really happy to have you. And we really love you to take this offer. And I was like, I'm be honest with you. I think I'm, I'm worth a lot more than that. And I'm kind of pissed off that you think it's because I haven't uh, pitched against anybody. And I, at the time I had this offer to go play in Cape Cod League and I had all these, you know, uh, years left of eligibility and I was like well and I basically ended the conversation I was like well if you don't think I can play against uh guys like I hear the best uh d1 players in the world are in Cape Cod uh Massachusetts so I'm gonna go and uh so that's that's what I did I kind of rolled the dice so you bet on yourself there is there any scenario where you go back to Mount Olive or were you for sure like you're done with college uh, I mean, I was always like, a, a, I had good grades and everything. So I wasn't like in, in jeopardy you didn't, of you didn't dropping stop out. going to or, class during spring break? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, so I, I had all the leverage on my side as far as, like, I had a place to play. I was going to be their number one. Uh, like, I, I had, like, everything I could want. I get another year towards my degree. Like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't hurting for options. So, yeah, I mean, I had that in, in the back of my mind, but... Yeah, if I'd have gone out and, you know, like crapped a bed, I mean, I'd have been, you know, maybe 10th rounder next year. So uh, there, there was some, definitely some thought process. But at the time, I was like, you know what, screw this. Like, if they think I can't play against the best in the world, like, they're wrong. Per your scouting report on the, the BA's Mariners top 30 prospects in 2012, the, is it true that your, your flight up to the Cape was your first flight ever? Uh, yes. I had never flown anywhere. Uh, I, I don't think I could. My I know my parent. My parents have very thick Southern accents. Like I know they couldn't say Massachusetts. I probably couldn't spell it. Uh, so yeah, the weird. I, I was like, well, I guess I'm gonna go up to Massachusetts, and I just assumed that there was a flight from Kinston, North Carolina, to Cape Cod, and there's not. If you uh, are familiar with the area, so I, I had to get on three different flights. So basically, I got on this tiny plane to start with. And then as I got closer to Cape Cod, all these planes kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, and I remember like the only advice uh, my parents gave me was don't buy uh, airport food because it's really expensive. So like I really I had no expectations and I was just shocked like the whole process. 
Did you bring headphones? No. That's, I, what, I, that's what I would have told you to bring. I had no headphones, no uh, ergonomic pillow. I had nothing. Tough. That, that's, a, that's a tough go. Uh, yeah. But the Cape must not have been a tough go because the, the Mariners did sign you. What's the, what's the Cape experience like for a guy that's holding out where not only is it is it a pressure-filled situation? You're facing better players than you faced all spring, but every outing is a roll of the dice. Yeah, so for me, uh, I talked to the uh, the coach who was, I can't think of his name right now, but uh, I, I probably have it in my phone actually. Uh, coach E was his name, but uh, he was the uh, Boston College's either head coach or assistant coach or pitching coach at the time. Uh, but he was like, he had this really thick uh, Boston accent. He's like, Capsy, we're just trying to get you paid, dog. And it cracked me up. And he would say that before, like, if he handed me the ball mid-inning, like, he would say that to me. Capsy, go get paid, dog. And it cracked me up. And it was just like, he kept it so loose. Uh, so that like, I kind of didn't feel that pressure that was obviously there. Because honestly, after, after every about two outings or so, the Mariners would call my agent and they would up the price a little bit. And it would hit up the price a little bit. And I'm just like, no, I'm like, I'm here. Like, I'm happy with the situation. Like, I'm pitching well. And, like, I'm just going to keep throwing the ball until you give me an offer I want that I think is worth, worth uh, my value. And, and then I'll accept it. And I'll go wherever you want to go. But, like, Plus, until, you, you don't want to have to take any more flights anytime soon. Yeah. It, yeah, that's probably the, the real reason in the back of my mind. Like, I can't get on another plane right now. Uh, yeah, but so I was just like dead set like if you want to see like who i am like i'll I'll come out here and play against whoever i gotta play against you know so what finally got pent to paper uh yeah so they eventually they uh i pitched in the i made the all-star game uh pitched in it did really well and then they were basically like this is the offer this is the bottom line like this is what we're gonna pay you and i was like like that's the offer i asked you for like a month ago like that's all i've been asking for this whole time like yeah sure i'll sign and uh and then i went and i went to low a clinton iowa which was actually much more my speed i'm sure they thought i was going to be shocked by the place but it was actually much more what i was used to uh this known for a purina dog food plant uh which it smells like every every day you are the second person on this series to mention the the dog food plant in clinton Yes, it but is, it is apparently very much a thing. So keep in mind, though, Mount Olive is Mount Olive Pickle Company, and it smells like pickles the entire time you're there too. So like they have a that pick- seems better than dog food. Though. Yeah, they have like a pickle festival every year. Like it's it's just as much into pickles as they are into dog food. Yeah, so I'm definitely good into smells at that point. Something we talked about a little before we started recording was how. D2 travel isn't quite as glamorous as Division 1 travel would be. There's no there's no planes. A lot of times you you know, you don't get your own hotel room. A lot of times you're shacked up with three or four dudes in, in a room with two beds. Do you think that helped you adjust to travel and lifestyle in Clinton and then in Jackson the next year a little bit better than it might have if you had been in in a school that year, you know, your talent suggested you you might have been at? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, because everybody's always talking about the grind, right? The minor league grind, all this. But like, we were used to that. Like in in Mount Olive, like I, I didn't get a bed to myself when I went uh, on a trip. Like I s- split a bed with another dude. Like that's just the way it was. And like we rolled 
dice or whatever for who got the bed on their start day. But I mean, that's just what it was. Uh, so yeah, I got to minor league baseball and it was honestly very similar to kind of what I had expected, but I'm sure some of these D one guys that had come down from these big sec and ACC schools were just like, just mortified, uh, at just the conditions. Cause I mean, like, like not to talk crap about minor league clubbies, but like a lot of times there's black mold in the clubhouse and the pregame spread is the postgame spread. Like, and you better, better be there quick or you're not getting anything. So, I mean, it's... But if you play D2 ball, you hear like, oh, wow, you get a spread? Yeah, like, what's Man, the spread? Man, how about that? Yeah, like, I was I was shocked when we didn't have to uh, take care of the field. Like, we didn't have to uh, tamp the mound after the game. I was like, oh, man, this is awesome. Like, shoot, <laughs> like, perfect. Yeah, I'll just go home. Yeah. D2, you're the, you're the groundskeeper, uh, the maintenance man, you're everything. Oh, yeah, sprinkler goes down, and, like, I'm... Like, it might be my start, and I'm out there, like, trying to fix the sprinkler. Like, it, yeah, it's like, you just, whatever, next man up, I guess. But, yeah, it's it's a different world. So, my, minor league baseball is like going to the Ritz from D2, then, apparently. Um, what was the, you, you get four starts in Clinton, you get you get kind of a little taste. What was the game plan for that offseason? Did you know you were headed to the bullpen the next year? Uh, no. Uh, so, in my mind, I just wanted to get to the big leagues as quick as possible, because like that's where you make your money, right? Like nobody makes some money in the minor leagues, uh, and and I know that like going in. So like I, I'm like I'm trying to shoot through the system. Like how do I do that? Like I, I throw hard and I, I punch guys out. Like that's that's gonna be my ticket. Uh, and actually in spring training I had made so basically how spring training works for starters or relievers is if you're a starter you need up downs because you got to get used to the multiple innings and you need like to build up to like three four innings by like mid spring. And as a reliever, you need some maybe one up down, but a lot of back to backs or whatever. Uh, so I was doing a little bit of both, and I was probably halfway through spring. And I remember uh, Carl Willis came up to me. Uh, he was the it, uh, major league uh, pitching coach at the time. He was like, "So listen, uh, there's two routes. Like we can make you a starter, and you can go start, uh, or you can be a reliever." And uh, you'll probably start out at a higher level, but uh, we'll see how you like do. And uh, I was like, well, what's going to get me to the big leagues quicker? He's like, well, you can make it to the big leagues quicker by being a reliever. I was like, well, sign me up for that. Like, I'll, I'll do that. And uh, that was literally the conversation that <laughs> shaped my career. I probably should have spent more time like thinking about it. I probably should have spent a night to think about it. But yeah, I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that then. Well, at the time, it it paid off in spades really quickly. Before you went out, you got sent out to Double A Jackson. Before you went out there, were you? Did you have any apprehension at all? Were you nervous about succeeding? Because I mean, a, you know, a year before that, you had been you know pitching in Division Two baseball. Uh yeah, maybe call it just uh, just not understanding my surroundings, but I didn't realize that they sent all their prospects and every, like the prospects are in, in double A and triple A. Like, like that's where they are. Like, that's where you really get evaluated as a player. And I didn't realize it at the time. I was just, I was just happy to be there. And I was like, well, I'm here. Might as well like try and throw hard and punch guys out. And it worked out. Uh, but yeah, it was just a huge, uh, just more of an adjustment in, understanding like just seeing different areas of the country that i'd never seen and being so regimented uh, in the minor league system like i, I was expected to be somewhere at a, uh, a certain time i was expected to make it on time for lifts i mean and that was easy for me because like if i didn't do that at mount olive like 
I was going to have to do extra running. So I wasn't going to do that. Like I, I would be there early or whatever I needed to do. But yeah, it was just a really, I don't know. It kind of just all came together and I really, really lucked out. Yeah. I mean, the on field was not much of an adjustment. You're, you're pretty untouchable in Jackson. You're in the show a few months later. Did you feel the momentum as it was happening? Did you think like, Hey, I'm, you know, each outing out, I'm, I might get the call or, you know, did you realize you were on the fast track or did it surprise you how quickly you got up? Uh, so it surprised me how long I stayed in double A just because I had done really well. Uh, so I, I uh, made the all-star team and all that and went to all-star game, pitched really well. Uh, so I like was pitching well. So I was just kind of surprised that they had kept me down for so long. But at the same time, I'm like 20 years old, 21 years old. I'm like, well, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, I'm not supposed to be in the big leagues. Uh, so like I, I understood it a little bit, and then eventually I get uh, told I'm going to AAA. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Like then it starts to spin. Like, oh wow, I'm really on the fast track. So I'm thinking I'll I'll spend the rest of the year in AAA, and I'll probably be in AAA, you know, half the year at least next year, maybe the full year, and then after that, like maybe I'll get my shot, you know. Uh, so I get called up to AAA, literally throw an inning and a third. I'm probably, I think I went, I think I was actually the last last year that they played in Tucson, Arizona, uh, another plane flight. Uh, but, uh, so I got a Tucson, Arizona pitch, like an inning, a third, and they pull me and like, I'm punching guys out. Like I'm throwing really hard. I just got called up. Like I'm happy with how I'm doing. Doesn't ha- don't have any runners on. And they just like come pull me mid inning when I'm cruising. I'm like, Oh, that's kind of weird. All right, whatever. Yeah. Thanks. Here's the ball. Like appreciate it. Uh, so I'm like, maybe I'm getting sent back down. I don't know. Maybe I was just up here for as needed. Uh, so then they don't say anything to me. I go sit down, kind of like bum that I got pulled. And uh, like a shower. And as I'm about to leave, the coach like calls me into the office. I'm like, wow, I'm really getting sent down. I come up here and shoved. And like, they're going to send me down. That sucks. Uh, and then uh, they said, uh, well, we're, we're not going to uh, let you stay here, unfortunately. I was like, oh man, that's a bummer. And the, and the coach says, uh, yeah, you're actually going to go to the big leagues. I was like, oh. So like it, it probably took like a minute and a half to set in what he had just said. Uh, so then I go out, call my parents, do all that. And uh, the next day, I'm on my flight to Seattle. And just like it was like a whirlwind, honestly, because literally a year and a half before I had barely pitched at all. And then like a year ago, I was like just D2, rural North Carolina, like big fish small pond kind of thing and it just kind of really took off after that yeah i mean that that was the next thing i was going to ask you're you go from being 20 at a d2 small college in north carolina to you're 21 you're in the big leagues you're fresh off a pretty big signing bonus and now a big league paycheck you know even if you'd gone to a big school even if you'd gone to like an sec school you're still a year after school. You're sharing a clubhouse with King Felix at the height of his powers, Ichiro. Was there any too fast, too soon moments, or were you able to kind of take that in stride? Like, if that would have happened to me personally, you give me a bunch of money and status at that age, some really bad things were going to happen. <laughs> uh, I had a pretty good head on my shoulders as far as that. Uh, but as far as development, like, yeah, I probably, like, needed more time in the system. Like, I... I, I knew I threw hard, but I didn't know how I threw hard, right? And I knew that like it got outs, but I, I, I did I know how to pitch? Not really. I didn't have like a, a off speed pitch that I would 
be comfortable flipping in there three two or two two you know like yeah if i'm up in the count yeah i'll throw a banger in there all day but like if i'm behind no it's you're getting nothing but heaters and so like i I definitely probably could have used with some more development but at the time it was like yeah it it was the same kind of mentality that had got me through the cape right it was like well i'm here like i might as well go out there and give my best and like if they're gonna if they don't think i can prove myself against these guys and they're wrong you know so you had you had the confidence in yourself even without the you weren't thinking about oh I don't really I don't have that breaking ball you weren't thinking about the stuff that you you don't have you just had the confidence to I'm just gonna keep doing this yeah it was like if you in my mind uh, which was completely I would never tell anybody this it was like it was my in my mind I was like I was gonna throw it down the middle as hard as I could and like dare you to hit it and I was like like if it ended up in inside a little bit i just assume it would break your bat and if it was outside for a strike i was like oh man nice hit my spot you know like that was kind of my mentality until i developed a a breaking ball well your first big league season goes you know fairly well you keep an era under four what is the the first outing like what what's it like when you see the third deck for the first time oh yeah so i get called up and the team is in seattle uh, they're playing. They actually play in Toronto, in Seattle, uh, and so I, I don't pitch. That uh, I think I was there for two days before we went out of town on our first road trip. I, I didn't pitch. I, I think they were just kind of like getting me used to the environment. I'm sure they probably saw how big my eyes were when I <laughs> came into the clubhouse. Uh, but uh, yeah, so my first outing is Yankee Stadium. So I don't. I'm not sure that was better, but uh, yeah. So first outing is Yankee Stadium, and I face uh, Russell Martin, uh, Curtis Granderson, and Derek Jeter. I'm like, oh great. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of how it went. Just kind of trial by fire, I guess. Something that I can't imagine you had a lot of at Mount Olive was was fans at least to comparable to a minor league Easy. level. Easy. We, we had at least a dozen. At least. You, some like half parents, half like guys, girlfriends pretty much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so your pinned tweet on Twitter right now is what's the best heckle someone has uh. said to you? And you have a you have a top three. And I'd imagine most of the, I'd, I would guess all of these happen in pro ball. Uh, your first one, I, I need the, I need all three stories, or I, I at least need a, I at least need one. The, the first number one is I looked you up on Wikipedia. The page was unimpressive. Yeah, so I don't know what it is about Canadians, but they are like the nicest people ever, and they're the worst hecklers in my mind because they like don't ever go for the jugular. Uh, so that one was uh, in Toronto. Uh, obviously, and uh, yeah, the guy said it, and it was like, and it made me chuckle. I was like, you know what? That one's going to stick with me for a while. And when I was started writing that tweet, I was like, you know, that one, maybe it was a really good heckle because I have never forgotten it and I probably never will. Like that one, for some reason, that one really stuck with me. And then uh, what are the other ones that I can actually? Uh, one is a fan staring at you for close to an hour through plexiglass. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So in Chicago, in the White Sox, there's like this beer bar, beer garden or something. And there's just like this really thick like plexiglass window and this guy i mean he's probably pretty hammered but he just like has the most disgusted look you've ever seen on a human being and he just stares at me for an hour hour and a half like not even watching doesn't watch the game like all he does is drink his beer and stare at me and like i'm kind of like side-eyeing him a little bit like man this guy's pretty dedicated and uh and he just 
like as I'm like stretching because like it starts to get later in the game and like I might go in and I get close enough to that window and all he does he has no emotion like on his face and he just says caps you suck and he just said it and it was just like it was like he felt it and he wanted me to feel it and I was like man that was like that was harsh yeah that, that was a pretty good one too and the uh, the third is you seem nice but I hope you blow the game. Oh yeah, that was somewhere when I was uh, setting up for AJ, who actually AJ Ramos, who actually just got uh, picked up by the Dodgers. Uh, congrats to him. But uh, yeah, so I was setting up somewhere for AJ, and uh, you know, I was like feeling it. I was like kind of in a groove, and like they were just so nice. Like I think I had even given them a ball like earlier on in the game, like just like I had formed a rapport with this guy. I thought. And then, uh, yeah, so... I thought we were friends. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then I, like, call comes in, capture in, perfect. So I do my warm-ups, everything. I think I give the guy the ball, and he's like, capture a really nice guy, but man, I really hope you blow this game. And I was like, good God! Like, that was a a savage thing to say. Like, as I'm... And this is, like, as I'm, like, basically on the warning track already. Like, I'm, I'm committed at this point. I'm in the game. Well, you're you're in your early 20s, you're, you're 21, 22, you, you're in the big leagues, you're having to deal with hecklers now. Your, your 2013 season, you know, you struggle a bit, and I'd guess is the first time you struggle on a mound ever in your life? Uh, yeah, I mean, I had basically seen success basically right out of the gate and just never looked back kind of thing and then even even that year I pitched really well the first half and then as like the inning started creeping up I I I don't know if I got fatigued or what but it was just like like it just I was just making mistakes that I hadn't been making and maybe guys had you know kind of figured out that I didn't really have a breaking ball whatever but I mean I just started I remember I pitched really well, and then I just had this string where I just couldn't get guys out. Like, and it was just like two or three like run innings for like five or six outings in a row. So they sent me down, and they wanted me to become like more upright because I was like had a lot of lateral trunk tilt at the time, and they wanted me to be more upright, more like conventional looking thrower. Uh, so that was actually kind of the whole start into like what you probably have seen on YouTube and. All let's that. get to my okay let's let's go ahead and get to my my favorite part about your career when you google your name the first thing that comes up is carter caps delivery walk me through the hop step yeah so basically if you look at it uh there's like this triple extension that happens of my like hip socket knee ankle right and that was happening prior but i had more of that lateral trunk tilt so the force was more like down the slope of the mound towards the plate instead of getting airborne that you see like in the the viral videos of me or whatever uh so that that's the issue right like so i still am creating all this force but now i'm more upright and this force is becoming like vertical so then it's like i'm getting airborne looking like jordan walden kind of uh, but nobody wants me to change it because there's no rule against it yet. And I'm just getting out. Did it start out. in Seattle or was it, did you start doing that when you were traded? Yeah. After you were traded? Yeah. So I, I got traded the off season of 13. So I pitched all year, uh, in 13 with Seattle and then I get traded to the Marlins and then they want like old Carter with Seattle and then Seattle had obviously like gotten me more upright. Uh, so I'm kind of like in limbo, right? Like I, I don't know 
what I want to do. I don't know what the team wants. Uh, so then I go into spring, uh, and it's just not a good spring. Like I am kind of all over the place, but I eventually like settle on, on, on some mechanics and, and pitch the year with that. And then I come back next year. I'm like, well, like, I I want to be better than that. Uh, that's not like who I am. So I try and like get back to the velocity, like I'm accustomed to. And it just kind of like, I don't know if it was just me or whatever, but like, I'm like, Oh, I'll just add in more legs, add in more legs. Like I'll, I'll just create more power with my lower body and like the velocity will be there. And as I'm doing this, like that triple extension is still there. Uh, but it's just kind of getting mistimed a little bit and it's just getting longer and longer and longer. So then I come into spring, like not, I've never been a really big video guy until like now where I'm working at driveline. But like, I look at my video in spring and I'm like, holy crap, like, what is that? This is your first spring in Miami or your uh, second spring with Miami? Second spring there. So this is 15. Uh, so I'm like, man, that's, I still, that's pretty, pretty downhill. Uh, it's getting a lot of like extension toward the mouth, but then they don't want me to change it. Cause I'm like setting the world on fire, getting everybody out. Uh, but then I kind of, uh, so they start me out in triple a cause nobody's like sure of the legality or whatever. Like I do well there. They call me up, uh, and just kind of the rest is history. Just like do really well. And then, so Towards the end, I get a partial tear in the UCL. It's my second one at this point. Um, when did your when was your first? Uh, the first would have been in fourteen, but I like pitched and then uh, like had the UCL tear and then came back that same season. And then in fifteen, uh, I had it like basically the last like third of the year and just didn't make it back in time. Well, you before your elbow barked, you reached the point of like you were nails. You were I, I like to call it the the high point for relievers. You're good enough to get put on a fantasy team, even as a reliever who isn't getting saves. You were having an elite season. Uh, before your elbow barks, did you feel like you finally had pitching figured out? Because again, you'd only been doing it for like five years. Did you feel like you had mastered the craft enough? Because the stats showed it. Yeah, so at this point, like, I'm getting comfortable reading batters. Like, if a guy fouls me off, like, a certain direction, like, I know, okay, wow, he was, he was late, or wow, he's cheating to the fastball. He's about to get uh, uh, the, basically, slurve that I was throwing. It's like, oh, he's about to get the slurve right here. Or vice versa. I could throw the slurve early, you know, and kind of, like, spin it up there soft uh, when I know he's going to just, sh- like, immediately shut it down out of hand. And then I'm going to save the really good one for later in the count when I need to put him away. Uh, so I got like, yeah, mentally, physically, it's all just kind of syncing up at this time. Well, then you're not only losing a year when you have TJ, you're losing a year kind of at like the height of your powers. How did you mentally grapple with that? Were you worried or were you just like, I'm going to rehab this and I'll be, you know, right as rain? Yeah. So like, it's the same kind of mentality, like with the chip on the shoulder, right? It's like, oh, perfect. Like uh, it, this gives me like something to fuel my fire. Right. Uh, so like I ended up being like, I, I like attacked my rehab. Like I took it very seriously. Like w- whenever they told me like I had a ROM range of motion to set. Cause like as soon as you come out of the hard cast, like they want to check your range of motion. I was like, I'm going to go to 180. Like I'll, I'll extend my elbow all the way. Like I'll do it right now. And I did. So like, I'm like way ahead of the game and all that. And I ended up like coming back 
And I think I was like back on the mound for like 11 months, which is really fast. And in the meantime, you get traded, right? While you're rehabbing? No. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I get traded then. Uh, so this is halfway through 16. I get traded. Uh, I think I like posted a video on Twitter of me like making my first like throw. Literally the first time a ball has left my hand since uh, TJ. And a, a week or two weeks later, I'm traded to San Diego. I'm like, wow, I didn't expect to get traded on the DL, let alone like a serious DL. Like I'm not coming off this thing anytime soon. Uh, How much contact did you have with the Padres until the next spring training? Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I went with the team and everything, and I uh, even traveled on some closer closer games. But they they were very very cognizant of my rehab. They were uh, involved very much the whole way. When did you learn that MLB was going to be making a rule change? kind of targeting your delivery yeah so i'm in uh 2017 at this point and i literally come into the clubhouse for like a, a regular spring training day and there's like 30 people in front of my locker and that's never good that, e- that means something big just happened right like they found a body in your backyard you got traded or like something just happened it's like, oh, crap. So, like, I go there, and I'm, like, hoping there for, like, somebody behind. Because like, I, I think I might have had, uh, I think I, I had Brad Hand beside me. So, I was like, man, maybe they're here for Brad. It's like, no, they're definitely here for me. Because <laughs> they, like, all, like, perk up when you come in. Uh, it's like, crap. So, I, I sit down, and then they, like, start asking me about the rule change. I'm like, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I literally just woke up an hour ago. <laughs> you're going to have to give me some context. And so eventually somebody pulls it up on their phone and shows me the rule change. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that, that definitely sounds like me. Uh, all right, well, I guess I'll like see how it goes. And I'll try and do whatever I can to be legal. And then from there, it's kind of just like snowballs downhill. How do you rebuild your delivery after that? You've, you've rehabbed with that in mind. You've been doing it for a couple of years now. How, like spur of the moment before the season how do you go about changing how you pitch yeah so at this point it's like probably it's less than five weeks before the season probably like three or four um so i'm like crap so basically you're back to square one so you know you're not gonna break with the big league club because like man there's no way i'm gonna be able to get this i'm like all right well it was just going to reboot and basically it was just try and get something comfortable that would be halfway competitive because I, I feel like I still had the juice in my arm, right? Like I, I'm, my arm feels like a, a million bucks. Like it's coming off of surgery. I got literally a piece of my hamstring woven into my elbow. Like to be sure that'll hold up. And uh, yeah, so it was just like a long path there to try and become legal, I guess. And 17 is, you know, seemingly a struggle. Uh, especially when you get up to the big leagues, eighteen is you know you don't you don't throw in the big leagues. Did you spend a little time on the DL, or were you just more struggling with your delivery? Uh yeah. So basically, that was when like I, I was struggling with the delivery, but also when I did go out with a team, like it'd be fifty percent of the time I'd get called for a balk kind of thing. Like so, it was a very like high rate of balks I got. So it is literally. You'd go out there and sometimes in a series you'd throw the first game, no balks were called, and then you pitch the third game of the series and all of a sudden 
every pitch is a balk because they went back and looked at the video and didn't like it or whatever. And it was all uh, umpire's discretion. So it was literally up to them if they thought it was or it wasn't. It was no, there was no like set rule, I guess. So after the 2018 season, your first season besides the year you were hurt that you didn't pitch in the major leagues, you're granted free agency. What was what was your game plan at that point? What was your course of action? Yeah, so I was just hoping that somebody would be interested, and I'm sitting there kind of like in the limbo uh, rehabbing, and I end up going to driveline because I've just heard, heard nothing but good things about those guys, and. I was like, well, if anybody can get me figured out, like to be sure the guys with the biomechanics lab can uh, can help me get there. And that's kind of just started my progression into what I'm doing now. And so you didn't pitch in 2019. What what is your what is your life been like at driveline since you last played? Yeah, so like 2019, I was at driveline working, like trying to get back basically. And it literally, it was just, I had poor timing, uh, like kinematic sequencing. I had the triple extension that we had talked about, and I had a really poor arm path. My arm just was not getting up when my front foot was landing. So you can't create power that way. Uh, so I, I, I had a lot of things to work on, and that was kind of what I was doing when I was at driveline training in 2019. And then I started working for them uh, in 2020 in January. And so you're not, you're not yet 30. I mean, and obviously this hasn't been a normal, a normal season. Are you still working on yourself, working on your arm, or are you just working with other pitchers? Yeah. So, I mean, like, it's one of those things, like you're never really retired. Like you might retire on paper, but you're never like really retired. And I'm like the 99% of people who don't choose their retire date and have a big press conference. I'm like all those people. Uh, I just simply like nobody's interested kind of thing. Um, so like I, I would I love to still play? Yes. Uh, do I think I ever will? Probably not. I mean, it's just I have so many mechanical inefficiencies right now that it, it just is not even feasible. But like I said, I'm just training at driveline right now and like with the guys and I really enjoy that environment and, and the coaching aspect with what's going on in player development right now and what driveline has kind of been at the forefront. Do you think if you would have gotten or someone like you would have gotten to yourself at, you know, 2021 or right when you got into pro ball, do you think that's when those mechanical inefficiencies needed to be smoothed out or it was something that just never going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's kind of what I want to be, right? I want to be that mediator between the data analyst and the player. Like, I want to be able to decipher the biomech report. Or I want to be able to say, hey, yeah, like your uh, vertical break on your fastball is creeping down because you're not getting the same uh, lift that you normally do. And that's going to cause problems down the road. It might not cause problems in this outing tomorrow night, you know, but it's going to cause problems eventually. And, and I think that was what. Uh, what eventually was my downfall, right? Like I had this lightning fast arm, so I had poor mechanics, but like the arm speed made up for it, right? I eventually caught back up, but as your arm gets slower because of age or fatigue or whatever, these efficient inefficiencies become bigger and the, the moderately bad positions become bad positions and then the bad positions become worse and you're just caught in this cycle of 
you just can't get out of the habits that you've created. Well, let's say that hypothetically, you said you're about 99% done. Let's say you were 100% done. How do you feel about your career looking back? Especially it's been about, you know, it's been just over 10 years since you went to Mount Olive as a catcher. How do you, how do you look back on your career? How do you sum that up? Uh, yeah, for me, it's kind of like a little bit bittersweet, right? Like I had the, the brief moments of like dominance or whatever you want to call it. But in my mind, like I didn't fulfill my potential because I had this like amazing arm that just it, maybe if I had had more coaching or maybe if I had done something a little bit differently, uh, I, I'd be in a different scenario right now. And it, so it's, it's a little bit frustrating, to be honest. Like it's I feel like I was kind of like given a gift and kind of squandered it almost. But at the same time, I went and I I learned biomechanics from all these really smart people. Like I, I, I've been to basically all the biomechanics that you can go to in the United States and and talk to them uh, and tried to figure out what I was doing. And I learned a little bit from each of them. And now I'm at Driveline and I feel like I have this wealth of knowledge now. And unfortunately, for some reason, I can't get it to translate to my career, but maybe I can help somebody else. Is there any maybe mental advice or anything? Like if you, if you got to talk to yourself coming out of Mount Olive, so short of giving yourself a complete mechanical overhaul, is there anything you could have told yourself or, you know, look back on or maybe told someone who is in your in your position as a D2 guy who's having to jump into the minor leagues into pro ball, any advice that you would give a, a guy like you or a guy in your spot? Uh, yeah, I would just say, uh, you, you always hear the quote, right? Like, do what got you there. And uh, that's kind of like an old fallback from the old older generation of coaches saying, oh, well, basically kind of taking like responsibility off their shoulders somewhat. Uh, but it's like, do what got you there. But at the same time, it's really great advice. Like, like, cause coaches just want to help you. Like I, I run into it all the time at driveline. Like, like a, a guy will throw five great pitches or whatever, and then throw one bad one and then look at me and say, well, what did I do wrong? And like, I want so bad to help the guy that like, I end up spitting out stuff that may or may not like help him with the very next pitch. Like you just made one bad pitch, right? And uh, I feel like you just run into that a lot. Like if you just do what got you there, like you're, you're already in the big leagues. You're like, you're in the big leagues at 21, whatever. Like just think about what got you there and just hammer out that like every day in your routine, just hammer that. Like what got me there? Like a, a strict lifting regimen, like throwing my fastball, like that lateral trunk tilt that gave me that f- sense of power that that's what got me there. But I got away from that because I went through one scuffle that I had never gone through before. And then all of a sudden I'm like grasping onto whatever somebody would say. And like, yeah, if you threw more conventional, yeah, more upright. Yeah. Hypothetically, you'd be able to command the ball a little bit better, but at some point, like you just didn't, you just didn't execute right at some point. So I, I think, uh, for me that that would be, the advice like whatever got you there like hammer that out and then if you can add stuff add it and if it helps perfect if not discard it and keep going and keep looking for that next little thing but if you're always looking for like big things that are going to change your trajectory of your career you're probably not going to find it it's probably going to be a bunch of little things that add up to that big thing where you feel something like in a hip hinge or whatever 
And that translates to your success. Last thing I've got for you before I get you out of here, and I'm putting you on the spot because this was not, we, we hadn't discussed this at all, but I mentioned earlier that when you get into your first big league clubhouse, you've got King Felix and Ichiro in there, two future Hall of Famers. Is there, do you have a good King Felix story or a good Ichiro story that you can share with the listeners? Oh, I have a couple. Some are not uh, suitable. Uh, so one... Yeah, this podcast does not have the explicit tag, so just keep that in mind. Okay, yeah, so one actually is really good, uh, is very user-friendly. So I'm actually, I played with Ichiro in Miami, uh, and so Yelich had just won his first gold glove uh, as a left fielder. Uh, Great, perfect. Uh, So him and D. Gordon are like in the clubhouse talking, and uh, we're in spring training, and uh, they're just talking about their gold gloves or whatever. And then uh, D just looks up, like, out of the blue as Ichiro's kind of walking by, not even paying attention. He's like, Ichi, uh, how many gold gloves you guys in? Only 12. And just doesn't even break stride, just, like, keeps walking to the shower or wherever he's going. And that just cracked me up. I was just rolling after that. Only 12 gold gloves. Uh, Only 12 yeah. is a guy who didn't get over to the big leagues until his mid-20s. Yeah. Well, yeah. Pretty Pretty incredible. Uh, Carter Caps, thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Where can the folks follow you on social media and check out your work at Driveline? Uh, yeah, so I've been trying to post pretty regularly on uh, Twitter. Uh, it's just at Carter Caps, uh, just like it sounds. And uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing. I'm on LinkedIn too, but I don't know if anybody uses that. But uh. And any former players can chime in on your uh, your pinned tweet about their worst uh their worst tackling oh yeah it's actually a really good thread just to go through like if you're just having a rough day and you're like man that guy that guy got after it uh yeah it's there's some uh some stories in there yeah i had to add my own carter thanks so much for joining from phenom the farm yes thank you for having me i appreciate it love doing anytime of course stay safe yep and that's a wrap on today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Again, a big thanks to Carter Caps for taking the time. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, and tune in in two weeks where we talk to former Rays and Indians outfielder Brandon Geyer. Uh, also make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com for everything MLB and prospect coverage. And with that, we will catch you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>